welcome to the Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Primus, father, entrepreneur, filmmaker, athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. I'm curious to learn more about how people live their lives, their struggles, and passions, and pains. So every week, with athletes, entrepreneurs, healers, adventurers, and beyond, I'm going to have unbound and uncensored long-form conversations about people, places, pursuits, and performance. Enjoy. Hello, 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 beautiful people. Welcome back to The Ramble. I got to say, I know I say I'm excited every time, but I'm really excited every time. And when I read my guest's bio, you're going to know why. Dov Barron has been named twice, not once, twice to the list of the world's top 30 global leadership gurus and Inc. Magazine's top 100 ship Uh, excuse me, top 100 leadership speakers. He is the leading authority on emotional source code and the anatomy of meeting. Dov is the founder and host of two podcasts, one of which is Leadership and Loyalty, which has been named by Apple Podcasts' number one podcast for Fortune 500 execs. Inc. Magazine also rated it as the number one podcast to make you a better leader. He is also an independent contributor to multiple media outlets, including CEO World, CNN, El Italia, Entrepreneur Magazine, Fox, and Medium. For more than 30 years, Dov has worked privately with global leaders and icons and their organizations. These leaders and organizations are the change makers who are committed to having an impactful influence on leadership, business, and politics. He is the best-selling author of several books, including One Red Thread, and Fiercely Loyal, which I'm holding up here, how high-performing companies developed and retained a top talent. As a speaker, he is honored to have presented to the United Nations, no small, small thing whatsoever, the Department of State, the World Management Forum in Iran, the famed Servant Leadership Institute, and the U.S. Air Force. My goodness, these are, these, those must have been incredible uh, incredible moments in your life, Dov. Dov is also the founder of the Authentic Speaker Academy for Leadership, where he and his partner teach high-powered leaders how to use verbal and non-verbal ethical persuasion skills to impact and influence change makers. Dov, welcome to the podcast. Cheers, mate. I'm happy to be here. Always <laughs> love having a chat with you, Joel. It's always a pleasure. Well, you too. I I have. I, I don't know if you have this impact on others. I imagine you do. But the first time we met, we, we were at a, it was a bar, it was a hotel lobby bar and we were with a group of, <laughs> right, right. There's a good yep. place to start. Oh, we were with a, we were with a, and you were wearing a lot, you were wearing an open neck shirt with open neck trousers and sling back shirt. Yeah, baby. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> That's what I wear all the time. Even when I'm Casual working on the farm. Casual for you. <laughs> But but all kidding aside, we were like, so we were this group of leaders, speakers, coaches, et cetera, just a small group of us. And not to sound like creepy, but I was instantly curious and captivated by your presence. I didn't know you prior to this. I didn't read any bios. The guy who had arranged the little shindig didn't like he had sent them out. I didn't read them. And I'm like, okay who's that guy? Like, what is his story? And then you shared your story and I was like, even more drawn to you. Now, before this gets really weird, I'll just, (laughs) I I, I say all that as a compliment, but also as 
an inquiry because you've done all these amazing things in your life. And the thing that the, the question that always stuck with me from that moment was how did you cultivate this presence? How did you build yourself into the type of person who's sitting there radiating this, this, this energy? And I know that I'm not trying to set you up to have to self gloat, about, you know, how good you are. But what I wanted to do was use that as a, as a way of just intersecting with your journey. And I have some mm. specific questions, but how, you know, where you, you started into building this incredible resume that I've just read out to the audience. You know, I, first of all, thank you for that. I, of course, I had no idea that you felt that way when you, f when we first met, um, because you said it was a, a group and it was kind of noisy and gathered, and you know, I I wouldn't have known. Um, and, and I, I honestly, I find that quite fascinating that you say that because I don't think of myself in that way. Uh, I don't think of myself as being particularly. You know, somebody somebody would be drawn to me. I have that experience, but it's not what goes on in my head. Um, and so, what it brings to me is one of the things that I teach is around charisma. What mm -hmm. is charisma? And I think there is the sort of persona of charisma, which is can be taught as a bunch of tricks. You know, and here's what you do, and here's the body movement, and here's the eyes, and here's where you hold your body. Yeah, I mean, it's you know. It's bullshit, but that's what we do, right? But I, when I look at what real charisma is, it's this, this, as you said, this pull, this attraction, this resonance that happens. And I honestly believe that that comes from vulnerability. I believe that that comes from, and when I say vulnerability, I don't just mean in the moment. I mean, in the history of yourself. So your willingness to confront uh, your own challenges, the things that have been off and, and have the courage to look at those and grow through those and, and confront them and speak about them. I think that that's incredibly intriguing to human beings, um, particularly in this social media world we live in where everything's, you know, it's an image and it's not real. And, we, and, I, and I think we love the images and we, we, you know, we scroll through following these dinglings who are influencers because it's we want to believe in this dream, but at the same time, there's the there's a polar pole, which is to what's real. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we want to poke below the surface. So we're following the Instagram perfect smile person who's about to commit suicide, and we know those stories, but we want to know what's below the surface. And I think that's why we're so intrigued by those kinds of stories when somebody has a persona and then they fall off that persona and they get revealed. Mm -hmm. I think that that is incredibly intriguing. If on top of that, you have somebody who is polymathic, which is what I am, you, you know, I'm interested in a lot of things. I've studied a lot of different things. And you put that together, there is something about that as a resonance that I think is intriguing. So maybe that is what it is. I don't know that I've consciously cultivated it because naturally I am a shy person. Mm -hmm. My wife doesn't believe me either, but. <laughs> it's so it's so well thank you for sharing that and indulging that you know just the way i kicked it off there but you know i think about businesses that i've consulted for and mm -hmm. the, the the challenging person that's not a fair point that the interesting and often eccentric personalities at the top big money guys 
and you know, the, the, you know, guys who've made hundreds of millions of dollars, mm-hmm. but they are—they're not who you'd think. They are—they are scattered in their minds, and they are risk risk takers like you would not imagine, and and or you cannot even imagine. And at times in my own career, I've recommended you to. Oh. It, well, and you recall Thank we you. just last yep. year. Remember, we there was a CEO I, that I introduced you to, and I do. The, the point I'm making there is there is this. You, when you look for leadership, when you look for this company is having trouble, I need someone who seems rock solid in who they are and what they know to come in. And what you're saying is, is that is only achieved through vulnerability and very, very hard earned life experience. Is that, is that like a fair? Yeah. I mean, so let, let me address that, that piece you just put forward, because I think it's a really a good opening to what we're going to be talking about here. Um, and that is that, you know, again, there's these personas and these personas of the Instagram influencer, but there's also the persona of the, the CEO, the millionaire, multimillionaire, billionaire, developer, risk taker, whatever you want to call it, you know, and you and I know those people personally. We know them personally. And we know that a lot of that is an image. And so I want to give everybody sort of this framework because I think it will help you understand where I'm coming from. So I want you to think of it in layers. So at the top of the layer is your success and your accolades. That's on the surface. That's what people look at. That's what everybody applauds. And that's what we can certainly acknowledge and we can uh, validate and we can say, well done. Took a lot. I appreciate it. But that's at the surface. Below that is your ego. Just below it. It's your ego that drove you to it. And so it's just below that. It's what drives that. And we can admire that part of the ego. But the ego is there to hide your pain. Mm -hmm. It's to hide whatever you don't want the world to see that is going on inside of you. And if you're sort of listening to us and you're thinking, well, you know, that person doesn't have that. Bullshit. I've traveled the world. I've spoken across the world. I've dealt with leaders across the world in, from every possible background. Nobody's there. There is no there. Everybody's got stuff they're working through. Everybody you meet is in some kind of pain. Everybody's dealing with some kind of emotional turmoil. And we need to have a lot more compassion about that and not assume that because the person has a big smile and drives a Rolls Royce or whatever, an Aston Martin, that they've got all their poo in a pile. It's not true. That means shit together in case people don't know. <laughs> Technical <laughs> terms. Um, so, you know, there's that ego that's hiding that pain. And a great way to avoid the pain is to keep driving towards greater and greater success or significance in the world. Mm-hmm. But below that pain, and this is what's really important, is our purpose. It's why we're here. Not your Why? It's the why of your why. So even your why can be a surface answer that comes from the ego when people, you know, Simon Sinek's work was wonderful and it got people to look at their why, but it's not, it's like he says, start with why. It's what's below that. So if you look at it now in levels, we're going, okay, at the top level, we've got the accolades, we've got the success below that. We've got the ego that's driving it on one side. And on the other side, the ego is hiding the pain. And if we dive into that pain, i.e. be vulnerable with ourselves. And when we dive into that pain, we can get to our purpose. But that takes enormous amounts of vulnerability, Mm -hmm. curiosity, 
and courage. And those are rare things to have together. People will, will act them out, but they're not real. Mm-hmm. That's rare. That, that maybe brings back us back right to the very start of our conversation where we talked about this presence you have, because, I, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid thirties. I've started businesses, multi-million dollar businesses and sold them, but yet I still find myself looking to somebody like you, like a father figure in a, in a business setting where I, I have so much insecurity around like, did I do this well? Did I, am I who I say I am when I'm out there? Is, is this all just for show? And the list goes on and on and on. And again, that's why it's like true leadership. And I, I want to get into this is like, I don't feel like that. But when I look to someone like you, I, I feel this sense of comfort in like this person will help me figure out this path I'm on. Uh, you know, that's not really a question, but it's, it's just me validating. And I think that in today's day and age, when you mentioned that, you know, there's, there's people posting and there's all these fake smiles, but there's so many of us looking for that person who, who can be a a bit more of a rock to us and can, it can help us dive deeper into our own strength and our own foundation and our own grounding. You know, uh, to bring up something you just said that I think is really going to hit home for what people are maybe thinking as you say that there are two pieces there uh one is you know somebody this sort of sense of a father figure and i know that that happens for me i'm not going to pretend it doesn't it does happen for me and and i have often said i am here to be a father to those who need one Uh, and oftentimes those are people who are older than me (laughs) they're not even younger than me they're older than me Uh, because it's got nothing to do with age it's got everything to do with emotional maturity uh However, this, this, I want to sort of take a hammer to something you said, and that is the rock. Uh, my wife and I were dating where I think we've been, my wife and I've been together 25 years. We were dating and we've been together about four months and she was over at my place. She came over to my place and she, I was not in my usual sort of mental space and she said, what's going on? And I just said, I, I feel really sad. And she said, Oh, you okay. And I said, no, I'm not. And she, and I, she said, can I do anything? I said, yeah, you could hold me. And she said, uh, okay. You know, she didn't know what to do. So I said, just sit the corner of the couch here and I'm going to put my feet up and I'm going to just lean into you and put my head on your chest. And I just want you to hold me. She was like, oh, okay, I could do that. And it was lovely. I mean, she was wonderful. It was lovely. And after about 15 minutes, I got up and I was like, I'm good. And she goes, oh, that's great. She goes, I, I don't understand, though, what happened. And she goes, I, I've never seen you like that. And I said, oh, okay. And she said, I said, are you okay with it? And she goes, no, not really. Mm. And I said, oh, why? She goes, well, you're a rock. I mean, you know, you're, you're unshakable. You're that kind of person. And, and I just looked at her. Do we swear on this podcast? Oh, yeah. Okay. I said, I'm not a fucking rock. I'm a human being. We have feelings. I have feelings. I'm just as human as you or anybody else. If you make me into a rock, I'm not allowed those feelings. Mm -hmm. That's not who I am. I have anger. I have sadness. I have joy. I have every human emotion. I may have a deeper understanding of those things and where they're coming from because of the work I've done on myself. Sure. But don't ever call me a rock again. I'm not a rock. 
I'm a human who is grounded and there's a difference. And I think that we're all looking for that. Like, is there somebody who can be really vulnerable and really solid at the same time? Because it's a dichotomy inside of our minds. We've gone, oh, you're a bag of shit. And you're just like, you're crying all the time and you're blowing snot bubbles and you're a victim or you're rock solid and nothing shakes you. Well, that's bullshit. Both of those are actually personas. The, the falling apart is a victim persona. And the other one is, is hero warrior. That's a persona too. It's got nothing to do with truth. Truth is I will feel what I feel when I feel it fully, completely, and totally. Mm-hmm. And as you know, when it, with my, as you know, Joel, I traveled around the world and studied many different religious philosophies. And I was working with my, uh, with my Buddhist teacher out in Asia. And I was there and like you, I traveled and studied with these people and meet these wonderful people. And we're talking about something and, and, and he said something to me and I was, I, I was apologizing for being upset. Mm-hmm. And he said, why are you apologizing? And I said, you know what? Well, I know I should be more calm and it should be more centered. And he said, oh, you Western Buddhists. <laughs> and, and I said, what do you mean? He goes, you think that Buddhism is about not feeling those things. He goes, Buddhism is not real. Buddhism is not about denial. What you're talking about is denial. Repression and denial is not Buddhism. He goes, when I hurt, you'll know. Mm-hmm. In other words, and this is what he said, in other words, feel it and feel it completely and totally. What makes it linger is that you're not feeling it completely. So if I'm sad, I will sit there and I will weep. Mm-hmm. I will cry and I will weep. And if I'm angry, I will write in my journal what I call fuckface letters, right? Dear fuckface. And I'm mad at you. And here's what it is. It's in my journal. It's not for them. I don't need to spill that at once in them. But I need to give it expression. I need to give it truth so that when I come to that person, I'm not vomiting my emotional mm-hmm. nonsense onto them. I'm clear. Mm-hmm. So it's, this is the dichotomy that most people don't get. And I think that that maybe is part of what you were talking about before, about that attraction, that intrigue, is that it's, it's incredibly powerful presence in the vulnerability with the strength. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that I honestly think that's rare, not because it's who I am, but because I've worked all my life at it and I've traveled the world to stay with masters and the people I've met who are masters are both. They are yin and yang. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it reminds me of those some of those old Buddhist stories. I think specifically on I'll, the paraphrase will be atrocious, but <laughs> around around geishas and this idea of, of that badness you know, this is, this is someone who is bad. And there's the one story where the two Buddhist monks are walking and and they get to the river and there's a geisha waiting there. And I I believe it's a geisha. And, you know, the one carries her across on his back and the other one's all up in arms because, uh, you know, he's like, well, you're not supposed to touch, you know? And he's like, he's like, what are you still carrying her for? I put her down, you know, eons ago. And that's, and that's this attachment that we have to the non-fluidity of, I think, the, the spirit of these teachings, right? Or, you know, the other one where this, this guy is, he, he's obsessed with this, with this beautiful geisha in the community. And I think his, you know, I think as the story goes, the, the monk just tells him to go spend the night with her. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, why I can't? He's like, well, you're obsessing about it. You're, you're now controlled by this idea floating around in your head. 
And I guess that's the same as, as what we say about having to control these emotions and be a rock. It's, it's, it's a false, it's a false concept that we're, that we Westerners, like you said, in this consistent and continuous and endless pursuit for perfection. And it's, it's what, you know, again, I see in, in modern stoicism, modern stoicism, you know, the Stoics are great. Don't get me wrong, but modern stoicism oftentimes is, isn't, is exactly that. It's like, well, don't let your emotions get away with you. So just deny them and think about it rationally. Okay. You, yeah, I agree with that, but feel it first. Mm Don't lash out and attack somebody, but be with it. Mm-hmm. Don't shove it in a back corner because that shit will haunt you. Mm-hmm. That stuff's coming back, my friend. It's coming back in a way you don't know. I'll give you an example that is perfect. I don't know if you saw this piece that I did, Joe. I did a piece on the slap. We all know I what the slap is. Right. So I did a one minute video on it. Oh, you mean Chris uh, uh, Rock and uh, Will Smith? Will Smith and, yeah. and, and Chris, Rock. Uh, Chris Rock. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, the first, I did two one minute videos. The first one was about context. Right. And I said, you know, it's easy for us to judge what went on, but we don't have context. We don't know what the relationship is between Chris Rock, Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith. We don't know what was going on five minutes before. We don't know, but we're all rushing to judgment. And that's, you know, understandable, but consider context that you don't know, because there's always a context you don't know to everything. doesn't matter what's going on. Anything you look at in your life, you know this with business. Oh, please, Joel, come on in and help us to be more successful, be more profitable. Okay, what's the problem? Well, the problem is we're not making enough sales. No, the problem is you suck. The problem is you're a shitty leader. That's the problem. And you have shitty sales because you're a shitty leader. But we don't want to look at that. We're not going to deal with that context. So. That's the first part I did was, was the context. But the second part I did was this. I did exactly the same thing. And I said, I, in the first video, I talked about context. But now let's talk about the history of context. What is the history of context? So the history, so the, in the present tense, context is what's going on between Jada Pinkett Smith, Chris Rock, and Will Smith. But now in the history of context, what are we carrying from the past into the present, a past context carried into the present that creates what we call a disproportionate response. You watch the video. We've all seen the video. Will Smith laughs when Chris Rock cracks a crappy joke. It's a crappy joke. Let's be honest. It's a 1997 movie that most people don't even can remember, right? It wasn't a funny joke. Chris Rock is a funny guy, and that was, that was well below par for him. Will Smith laughs, and then his wife looks at him, and he gets up and he slaps Chris Rock, and he walks away with a smirk on his face. So I have to go, okay, based on what I, you know, because I understand human behavior and, you know, I do all those studies, you know, all that about me. And I look at that and go, that is an example of disproportionate response based on a previous context. So I'm pissed off. Where can I let it out? It's not a conscious thought, but that, that valve has to be released. I believe it's not the truth. Now, please note, it's not the truth. It's just what my, I, my analysis of what was going on. Will Smith has been humiliated by the red table talks that Jada Pinkett Smith has had. He's joined in in order to not be humiliated, but in the process of joining in has become humiliated. He's bottled that and he's been very good at bottling shit. Any of the interview with him, you see over the years, he's been very disciplined about not letting things get away from him. This was too much. 
He's having a good time. He laughs at Chris Rock's joke and he sees his wife's looking at him again. He's going to be humiliated again at not standing up, not being the guy for his woman. So he gets up and he humiliates himself. I guarantee you that Will Smith, I'd love to interview him about it, was extremely embarrassed about what he did. He pretended he wasn't. He went out and he parted. But I, I will put money. I would put money that Will Smith went to bed that night in his own bed, not in hers. And he wept because that's not Will Smith. That was a disproportionate response based on humiliation and no outlet. So this is a way for us to understand these things is if you bottle it up, it's coming out. If you take a bottle and you put sand in it, sand's not explosive, right? But if you keep pressuring that sand into there and put it in with enough pressure, the sand will explode. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be a violent person to be violent. You just have to have enough pressure. That's the key. I, I agree with you. And I had, interestingly enough, I had read an article on, on him earlier. And, and, you know, he was talking about doing 12 ayahuasca ceremonies in Peru. And he, he was talking about his counselor helping him through this, this desire to have a, you know, 20 women with him at any given time. And you, you could just, even, even the way he was talking about how he didn't want to offend people, I think mostly his wife in his book that, you know, came out and you could just tell there was so much there for him. That's just down there. And I guess well, there's two questions that you've now sparked in my mind, which, you know, one, you, 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 you pan out to the world from this incident. And I'm curious because everything's explosive now. Everything's the slap mm -hmm. now. Yep. Um, you know, and, and simultaneously we're in the greatest, I'll use the word pandemic of censorship um, mm -hmm. ever. Oh, no, I shouldn't say ever. Sorry. In, in, at least in my lifetime. And in I'm modern curious, times for sure. Yep. You know, where both you, the pr prior to all of this explosive, what was the context overload that, that has come, that's come out. And, and are we not just doing it to us ourselves again by not allowing the conversations to be had that uh, across everything, across gender, across the, the virus, across everything that's coming out is all conversation that's not allowed to be had, you know, mm -hmm. other than one, one way. And I'm not saying that way is right or wrong. I'm not having an opinion on it. I'm saying, but the not alloudness is just going to lead to something on the other side of it again, based on you know what you've just outlined. And yeah, so th those are the two questions for you, Dov. Is like, wh wh where were we before that there was all this bottling suppression that all of a sudden came out and we all hated each other because we saw things differently? Well, I mean, I think that that's a, a very good point is that, you know, I'm, I will openly say, not a fan of Donald Trump. That's me, right? Not because I agree or disagree with many of his policies, because I don't think he actually had very many. Most of the policies he had were given to him, but because of who he is as a human being, he's not, I'm not a fan. That being said, let's look at him from an objective point of view. Who is the, who is the greatest creator of the women's movement, the gr greatest driver of the women's movement in modern times? Donald Trump. What? You say? How is that possible? The day he took office 
a million women marched in the square. A million women united. That hasn't happened since the 60s. Mm-hmm. Right? Women came together. Right? Because so very often we need the dark side to show us the light. We need that within us. It's important uh, for all of us. So, you know, I think there's a lot of denial in America about one side or the other. And now both sides are coming up. And so, you know, as you know, I make, I'm consulted around politics and political things. As you know, I did the Putin code, Putin report. And, you know, one of the things I, I see is that we think about the extreme right and the extreme left as being polar opposites. They're not. They're a circle. One feeds the other. So, you know, if if you can't say anything and everything is bad and you're a you're a racist because you said this or you're uh, a misogynist because you said that, well, that just pushes the other side, which just says, fuck it all. We'll say anything we want. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so now you've given my racist side permission because I'm not, certainly not standing with you when Antifa, which is an organization that stands against, guess what? Fascism, anti-fascism, Antifa is a fascist movement. You only have to examine it and take a look at it and you see, oh, it's a fascist movement. Wow. How is Antifa a fascist movement? That's bizarre. Right. So one feeds the other. And the, the challenge is this, is that we live in a click world. We live in a clickbait world. So is America extreme left and extreme right? No, it's not. 80% of America is not extreme left or extreme mm-hmm. right, but 10% on each side is, well, which one gets more clicks? Mm-hmm. The person who helps the person across the street and, you know, the person who's wearing a Biden T-shirt, who's chatting to, to somebody in a Make America Great shirt, who's getting along fine. Oh, well, that's not news. Mm. Let's have the ones who are getting crazy with each other. So this is part of the thing is that we're feeding this engine of hostility rather than looking for the, the context of who we are as human beings. And because, and this is why when people ask me my religion, I've often said that my religion is love, but you know, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, even I don't like that. It's so it's cheesy. But it is, is but it's not. It's it's there's it's not wrong. No, it, no, but it's it's wrong because I'll tell you why it's wrong for me, because love is a concept that most people don't understand. Mm. They don't really get it. They don't really know what it is. They have a romantic idea of what it is, but that's not what love is. So in truth, if I was going to be really pushy on that and say, well, what is it? I'd say my religion is curiosity, mm. because in curiosity, I will always return to love. If I'm curious about you wearing your red hat and your red shirt, I'm looking for your humanity. I'm looking for the commonality between us. I'm looking for what connects us. You know, you mentioned at the beginning that I spoke at the UN. Well, I spoke at the UN because we were invited there, myself and somebody I had worked with and helped. And that person was a Mm neo-Nazi. A neo-Nazi who very generously credits me with de-radicalizing him. So we get we spoke separately and together on a panel at the UN and and the person interviewing us was a Muslim lady from CNN. And she goes, how could you, somebody born Jewish, me, help somebody like this who was a neo-Nazi who wanted to wipe out your people? And I said, well, I didn't see a neo-Nazi. And she said, oh, because he left the movement then? I said, oh, yeah, he left the movement, uh, but the movement hadn't left him. He'll tell you that. Um, no, that's not what I mean, though. And she goes, well, what do you mean? I said, 
because you you would have seen a new neo-Nazi. I saw myself. Mm-hmm. And she says, you were a neo-Nazi as a Jew? And I said, of course not. No. She goes, I don't understand. I said, what I saw was a young man who was highly intelligent, highly articulate, and desperate for a place to belong. Mm-hmm. The neo-Nazi movement was just that place for him. Mm-hmm. If you had come along with something else, he would have taken that too. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with neo-Nazi. It was just he got validated for what was great about him, and it just was turned in a very negative way. Mm-hmm. And I just tapped into that. I don't live in the world. I live in the mirror. So everything's a reflection, and only through my curiosity can I get to that reflection. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say curiosity is my is my religion. Well, it's a bridge too, right? It's you know mm-hmm. if we if we all got curious about you know just take the take the vaccination for just a simple example that everyone knows. If we got curious why one side felt one way or one side felt the other be a lot different, but I, and I want to come back to some, if you want to say something, please do, but I want to go back a little bit before our, we go, yeah, forward. go wherever you need to go. Because I just found this out the other day when I was snooping on you <laughs> 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 and I didn't know this, uh, man, I read about your fall, your 120 foot free climb fall. You didn't know about that? I did not know about it. Oh, okay. I I don't think it had ever come up in any of our conversations. And, you know, we've sat down for coffee and and we've talked on the phone. And anyway, it was. And you've been on my podcast. (laughs) I, when we were talking about this vulnerability Mm -hmm. and how, you know, how you uniquely show up in, in this world in a way that is able to help bridge these divides. I'm curious both about, and if you can tell people exactly what happened, it's, it's just a terrifying and remarkable story, but I'm also interested in what happened on the other side of it, where I don't know how long after in your timeline, but you mentioned that your real transformation happened when you were sort of weeping on the floor mm. of your apartment and and so I'm trying to understand with where you are today and how you, this, this amazing way that you see the world and help people see the world, how much of that event plays into this? Yeah, it, it's interesting, Joel, because everybody thinks that that fall changed my life. And, you know, I think even initially I would have said it did, but it didn't. Falling 120 feet uh, while free climbing, and I, just, I will just briefly sell, tell everybody, uh, we were out by Brandywine Falls, which I'm sure you know, yes. up by Whistler. And uh, we decided there, was, there is no path to get to the bottom. But my buddy and I hopped the fence and we decided to hike down. And uh, yeah, it took us, I don't know how long, but we got down there. And when we got to towards the waterfall, I was like, you know, I was a full-blown adrenaline junkie in those days. And I said, let's go see if we can get behind the fall. And my mate's like, that's crazy. And I'm like, yeah, we, you know, we had runners on, we weren't dressed properly. You know, you got all this, this slimy green and you're trying to get across it. And there's this water spray of 70 miles an hour coming at you. You're fighting that. And there's a, there's about a three to five foot gap behind there. And when you get behind there, you are just 
sucking in negative ions, which is incredibly positive for the body. And you just feel like I came out on the other side feeling like freaking Superman. I could do anything. And, uh, and I said to my mate, let's not, let's not hike back. And he's like, well, we're going to take the elevator. Like you know, joking, of course. And I said, no, let's free climb. Now I'd been, I'd done free climbing. It's not climbing, which is actually reasonably sane. You have hooks and you have, you have cables and you have all kinds of safety gear. Free climbing, you don't have any of those things. You have chalk, you have the right shoes, the right hand, gloves. And that's pretty much it. Well, we had wet runners and wet clothing on and we started to do it because we are in insane. So that's what I started to do. And then, uh, not exactly what Alex and all used to climb. Uh, no, <laughs> no, based there. New. So I, uh, so here's, there's a couple of interesting pieces that I don't usually get to talk about, but at about halfway up, which would be about 60 feet, six stories, I could hear my mate grumbling behind me because I was kicking shit on him, not purposely, but it was just coming off my feet. And it was, you know, he was too close in a line with me and it was getting him. And I turned around, listen to this. This is how freaking smart I was and how dumb as a dumb as a stick I was for listening to my own advice. And I said, you don't have to come this way. This is the hard way. Huh? Oh, hello. <laughs> right. So he moved off to the side and I carried on climbing. And then at about 120 feet, which is 12 stories, I reached for a rock that dislodged a bigger rock that hit me in the face and actually saved my life because it knocked me unconscious. So I went floppy and I fell at maximum velocity backwards and hit a, a, a ledge that flipped me around. And so I landed on my face on the boulders below, not rocks, not small rocks, not gravel boulders. And it just destroyed my face. It turned it into mush. Uh, there's a whole lot of stuff I can tell you about that, that we don't necessarily need to get into, but it was, it's, I mean, my mate thought I was dead. He was certain I was dead. And when I got to the first hospital, the mountain hospital, they said I had a broken neck, broken clavicle, uh, three broken ribs, potential broken back, um, and some other things. Can't remember now. And I was basically too messed up. They couldn't fix me. So they had to take me from the Squamish hospital and ship me down to Lionsgate, which is the city hospital. Mm -hmm. So I got an hour run in a, in a ambulance and having traveled, having done different things, learned some mystical things. I would use some of the mystical techniques that I've been taught in the literally 10, 15 seconds. I would become lucid on this journey. I would have 10 or 15 seconds that black out again and come back and blah, blah, blah. And when I got to the second hospital, nothing was broken below my face. What? And they refused to give me the original x-rays. They said the, the x-rays must have been mixed up. It was a mistake, but it wasn't a mistake. Oh, my so, goodness. Nothing was broken below my face, but my, there was nothing left in my face. My jaw was in five separate pieces. Both cheekbones were collapsed. My nose was collapsed. Uh, one of my eyes, I, the eye, upper eye ridge had been dropped and one had been cracked. Um, the only thing, it was like a little piece on top of my forehead that was in place. The rest just looked like scrambled meat. And, uh, and people say, you know, that must have really changed you. Now, I died three times in that hospital, in the Lionsgate Hospital. Three times, I'm gone. One of the times, my daughter had flown out from the UK. She was 14. She'd flown out from the UK. 
she said she was sitting there and she said it was like a movie dad and i said why she goes because you can hear all the noises at the hospital and the ward and people whispering to each other you know and i'm sort of in behind the curtain with her and she goes suddenly it went really quiet and i looked at you and it looked like smoke was coming out of your chest she goes and i knew you were going and she said i screamed no don't go dad and she said the smoke went and i opened my eyes and looked at her and i was back again and that happened three times that i know of and so people say it must have changed you and the answer is it didn't it embedded me in my ego when people would say how you doing with my jaw wired closed like in you know i lost 50 pounds in 3 weeks so i'm just a bag of bones i'd say i'm great i'm coming back there's no coming back it's not how it works and then my mates would always want to take me out and have a night out and you know then they try and cheer me up i blew all my money trying to just recover and i had nothing so they'd just take me out for a couple of drinks and I would always be miserable, but I put it on. I mean, I put on the act, but I was miserable. And I come home and just be really depressed about I'm never going to laugh again. And I'm never going to come back. And, and then one night I go out with the lads and I had a great night. I laughed my ass off and I had fun and I was coming back. And as, as my mate dropped me off at the back and as I was coming up the stairs, I was thinking, you know, maybe I am coming back. This is good. I had a good night. I had a good laugh. I'm feeling good. There's a possibility of joy here. And I opened the door and the light from outside went across the kitchen floor. And as he went across the kitchen floor, I saw garbage everywhere. There were meat packages and cans and kitty litter and coffee grinds. And it smelled horrible. I knew exactly who the culprit was. I knew exactly who, it, who I needed to go after. And I went from joy to rage in a flash. I mean, violent rage, like I've never known before. I'm not a violent person, but I was in violent rage. And I was storming through the house looking for this, the culprit. And I get into the ki- into the living room and there on the couch is the culprit curled up and cozy and comfortable. And I lifted my hand to strike. I wanted to kill. And about halfway down, something clicked and like, that's not who I am. And instead I put my arms down and I picked up my cat into my arms because it's the cat that had done it. And I'm holding the cat to my chest and the coldest cat is the cat is cold and dead. And I fell to my knees and I began to weep, not cry, but like, <gasps> and I'm weeping over a cat that I didn't even like. This was a cat, a girl had given me as a manipulation. It was like, so I was resentment against this cat, but I'm weeping about this cat. And it didn't take me long to realize I'm not crying for the cat. I'm crying for me. This is my life. I'm dead. The one that I was is gone. And I just was on that floor for a couple of hours, just weeping for my own, feeling my own grief for the first time. This was nine months after I'd gotten out of the hospital. And I, as I laid there, I realized I had three options. I don't know if it was as clear as that at the time, but there were three options. And the first option was that I could continue with this facade of I'm coming back. I'm great. And clearly that was bullshit and it wasn't going to work. The second option was the most seductive of all, which is that I'm a victim. It's not my fault. This happened to me. Woe is me. And that was very seductive because it felt like, you know, I had a good excuse to pack it all in. And the third option was to examine the regret that I felt that I would never allow myself to feel to 
look at myself in ways I'd never looked at myself and to really ask myself, what is the purpose of my life? Not some superficial purpose. Because if you asked me five minutes before I fell, do I have a purpose? I would have said yes. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I would have meant it. I wasn't been lying. But I needed to dig deeper. Like I said, the why of my why. Like what was really driving me? I needed to dig deep into that. And I spent the next nine months doing that, making that decision. And that was the transformation. Because we think things change in this, in this, in this critical moment of, of devastation but it doesn't you know this joel as much as i do i can think of somebody we both know in common who's gone through horrendous disasters should have turned the person around and they keep going down that road and they say oh this was terrible blah 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 and this happened to me but you're still doing the same shit i i know a guy i worked with years and years ago who was who had a massive heart attack and he went i realized i've missed my kids and i've missed my marriage and i've you know missed all those things I'm changing my tune. Three months later, he's back doing the same things. It didn't change him because mm-hmm. it's not those moments that would change us. It's the choice point. So that's the critical moment. But the choice point and the choice point only comes, and this is important, in that moment when it all appears that it could go back to normal. Remember, I'm coming up the stairs. Oh, I'm joyous. It's mm-hmm. good. I can go back to normal. It's in that moment where we have to make a choice where it feels like I got to go all the way backwards into my pain. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. That decision is much harder. Mm-hmm. So we're not changed by that, that dramatic moment. We're changed by the moment when we go, it could all go back to normal and nobody would know, or I could be really courageous and step into this and find out what is, why am I really here on this planet and stop bullshitting myself? Like, what do I really want on that gravestone? That's a hard question, man. It's an easy question to answer superficially. Oh, he died and he helped people. Who gives a crap? Like, what's the real reason? And that only comes from confronting your own pain. So that was that's that is actually where it changed. Mm-hmm. That's what most people don't know is that the real moment of change was not in the fall, but in in actually embracing the dark night of the soul that came afterwards. Thank you for sharing that goosebumps. When you were talking, I was chills through my body for your story. And, and for some similarities that, uh, mm-hmm. that I, that I've, I've felt and, and we won't get into that, but I, I'm curious when you entered this, this dark night of the soul moment, you had already been a successful speaker and coach mm-hmm. and you had the tools to, to be aware and, and to, to coach yourself, so to speak, and to proceed, did you, or did you look to somebody else to help you find what you were looking for? This, this purpose that you talk about the non-superficial one, the, the real one to you. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. I was very successful. I'd spoken all over Australia, most of North America. Uh, I'd done well. Uh, I was getting booked. I was working a lot and it was great. Um, and I had, entered into therapy uh, of my own volition at 19 years old. And I fell when I was 32, right? So that's 13 years in. So I've got 13 years of knowledge. Plus, as I said, traveled the world, studied with these great teachers, done all these amazing experiences. So I, you know, I considered myself a pretty enlightened person, right? And as I like to say now, I used to be enlightened, but I'm all right now. Um, <laughs> You're a recovering enlightened person. <laughs> I'm a recovering enlightened person. So, 
it was that persona that I was carrying. Mm. And so when I first fell into that darkness, the initial response was to do the usual, which is I'm going to work it out myself. Because when I fell and people asked me, how I'm doing and I said, I'm great. I'm coming back. Let's remember, uh, you know, that persona is I'm enlightened, right? I've been a martial artist. I've been a boxer. I've been a leader and I come from a ghetto. You're not fucking knocking me down. Mm-hmm. I'm getting up a thousand times. I'm getting up a thousand and one. I'm getting up. But that after that moment, it was like, yes, I can do a lot on my own but I can't do enough. And the answer for that is simple. Now, remember, I I already knew myself, but here's the answer. A fish cannot describe water. We're all swimming around in our own shit and we can't see it. And I needed somebody who could see it. And so I said, okay, I'm going into therapy. And I went through four or five therapists within six months filtering. Mm -hmm. And And I'll tell you, the reason I was filtering is because I was like, I'm, I was better than them. Mm-hmm. So I would end up running the session mm-hmm. and like, this is bullshit. This is not working. I'm paying to run the session. That's no good. And I remember going to see this particular therapist who's no longer working Pat. And I chose it cause she was a feminist. So I was like, okay, so part of my shit is I'm, I've not had good relationships with women and I've got to get better at that. And I'm sure that that's part of the problem. So I picked this therapist and I sat down with her and I said, Pat, let's just start here. You better be good. And she said, why is that? I said, because I'm really fucking good. <laughs> and I said, and if you don't call me out, I will run the session and you'll go home thinking you had therapy. And I'll go home thinking I won the game that I paid to, to be in. Mm-hmm. I don't want that. Mm-hmm. You better be good. And she went, oh, I'm really good. <laughs> and she was. Reminds, she was. reminds me of that, that scene in, uh, did you watch Ted Lasso? Yeah. The, the therapist for the team. She was so good. She was so confident in her own. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but, but that's what it is. Like I needed somebody who would not let me get away with anything. And the trouble is when you're at that high level with the people who I served, you know, like my clients are way up there. Mm-hmm. So they run the gig. The, tr- the, the greatest problem of power is no one tells you the truth. I had that same conversation with the person we know in common. And I said, nobody's telling you the truth, mate. I said, and even the ones who are telling you the truth, I've watered it down. They're braver than everybody else. And he goes, well, why, why do you think that is? I go, because it's some way they rely on you for money. They won't tell you the truth, but I'll tell you because you haven't paid me a penny. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and people don't like that. I remember a client of mine from years ago when I was here, this is probably 10 years ago. And it was a lady in Australia who was a very powerful CEO. And she's telling me something. And I said, "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I'm listening. And then at the end, I said, you do know you're full of shit, right? (laughs) And she looks at me and she goes, how dare you? And I said, how dare I what? She goes, you don't speak to me like that. And I go, why not? She goes, nobody speaks to me like that. I said, that's the fucking problem. Mm -hmm. That's why you hired me. I'm not interested in lying to you or blowing smoke up your ass. I don't come with a smoke machine. You hire me because you really want to get to the truth. Mm-hmm. The truth of what's going on in your business, the truth of what's going on in your head, the truth of what's going on in your heart so you can get to your soul. If you don't want that, why did you pay me a large chunk of change? If you don't want that, it's fine. Find somebody else. But I'm not backing off from that. And then she starts to laugh and she goes, 
You're absolutely right. She's, she was a wonderful, still is a wonderful client. Most of my clients stick around, but you know, I mean, this is the thing is that it's part of the balancing power is that power removes truth way too often because purse strings are tied to it. And, and, and I didn't even have purse strings tied to it. I just had my ego tied to it. So people wouldn't tell me the truth because I was powerful. Right. And so I keep a circle of people around me who I know today will tell me the truth. They go, you know what? This is terrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, so I send them an article, like, have a look at this. Tell me what you think. Well, this is terrible, Duff. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Oh, all right. Mm, all right. I'll rework that one. Tell me what's terrible about it. You yeah. know, but I, I didn't, I didn't, I wouldn't have put those people around me when I, before I fell. Yeah. Well, I've been, I've been guilty of that. I think that, again, that plays into this very, very first point we brought up where it's like, you talk about a father figure, we talk about someone there. It's like, I want someone who's going to tell me the truth. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's, and that's something you would expect of your father or your mother, yeah. right? But that, that kind of figure. And it seems that more and more people feel like they're being lied to. And more and more people are lying to themselves. We talk about echo chambers. We talk about entrenching into their tribalism yep. to feel safe naturally, right? There's a natural move in an unsafe world. Yep. And, you know, and all of a sudden we're saying, well, wait a second, who is really telling us the truth? Like everybody's got, you talk about conspiracy, mm -hmm. fine, but everybody's got a fucking agenda attached to what you said, some purse strings, right? Right. And people do not know what to do with this un unveiling. It's a big word, but you know, there's, there's whether or not they, whatever has been unveiled is true or not. They, the feeling, the felt experience that is shifting in a lot of people to, I want the truth. I don't know if I can handle the truth. Okay. I'm going to go into this camp because that feels safer. And that feels like a truth that I can get behind, but it's almost like it's, it's creating more chaos before it gets better in a way. And I guess maybe what happens, yeah. but. Yeah, I, I think it is what happens. I mean, I think the shittiest advice any of us ever got was surround yourself with like-minded people. Mm. That's the problem today. Everybody on the left is surrounding themselves with people on the left. Everybody on the right is surprised surrounding themselves with people on the right. Like, you know, how many lefties, do you know, watch Fox? I do. Yeah. I would consider myself a left person, left leaning, but I watch, I watch Fox. I watch, I also watch RT, Russian television. Mm -hmm. I also watch Al Jazeera, the BBC, as well as some left shows. Why? Because I don't want one-sided opinions. Mm -hmm. I want understanding. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to call out the bullshit on either side. And I have independent journalists that I follow because I, I don't want one-sided things of anything. Mm -hmm. And it, and I think it takes, again, it takes courage and curiosity to do that. It's always easier to say, well, you're one of us, mm -hmm. right? And, and the problem is, and let's just go back to basic neuroscience here. Human beings have a desire and need to belong. The challenge is, that's basic in all of us. The challenge is that we trade belonging for fitting in. That's a vast difference. Belonging is, this is my place. Fitting in is, think about putting a new shirt in your closet and the closet's packed. You got to fit it in. You scrunch it through. You push things out of the way. And you get it in there, but it's going to get all kind of contorted. It's not going to come out fresh. Mm -hmm. 
But if there's a place where it belongs, it's not touched by anything else. This is exactly right. So you want to be in the world where you can spread your wings and have your opinions. You know, so like I'm a big fan of Joe Rogan. I'm a big fan of Joe Rogan because and I'm a big fan of Bill Maher because they both criticize their own. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan, too. And uh, well, did you we don't have to you know dive into their podcast, but you know, they just did one together and. You know, it's pretty revealing, you know. Well, I, you know, this, this is the thing, right? I mean, you know, I did a piece, Jesus, must have been 10 years ago, where I talked about who changes the world. And I said, we like to think that the people who change the world are white-haired old men. Mm-hmm. They don't change the world. They keep the world the same. And, and we forget who really has the power. And you think, well, I have the power because I can vote. Well, you don't have the power because you can vote. That's bullshit. There is no real democracy in Canada or America or any first world country. It's cronyism because there is money in politics. And until you remove the money from politics, one vote is not the same as another. Sorry, don't, you don't agree with me. You don't like that. That's okay. Just have a look for yourself. Really just have a real look and you'll see. Uh, you know, the, we talk about Russian oligarchs. An oligarch is a person who has enough money and power to influence the political cycle. We have plenty of oligarchs in, in Canada, which is the nicest country on the planet. Right? We have oligarchs in the U.S., in Australia, they're, they're in all the, quote, first world countries. So the peop- So it's not about the vote. So who really changes the world? I'll tell you who changes the world. Women, because they become mothers and they whisper into the, mouth, into the ears of their children. They influence their children. They have the power to change the fucking world. Let's empower women to think for themselves. And this is why we repress women for so long is because they whisper into the ears of their children. If you look at, let's take this example. uh, If you look at the hardcore uh, Orthodox Jews and you look at the hardcore Orthodox Muslim women, it's the women who do the atrocities to the other women. The women who hold women down and cut off their clitoris with a rusty can in Africa it's women who do that. Why? Because they're indoctrinated by men and because their women, the, their mothers were indoctrinated. So the women are never empowered to make a choice. Mm-hmm. The, the women who, who are young women who feel differently uh, are made to sit before they get married and their head is shaved. So they wear a shekel, you know, because they're now in an Orthodox Jewish wedding, uh, marriage and they'll never show the beauty of their hair to anybody but their husband. I mean, you know, you can have whatever rules and you can, you can do whatever. It's fine for me, whatever you choose. But let's remember it's women doing that to women. And we as men have been enforcing it. So the people who have the power are the women who whisper into the ears of their children. Enlightenment and incite and challenge and rebellion. Women, number one. Who next? The artists. The artists. They paint. They do poetry. They, they speak of the things that we don't speak of in ways that we can never speak of. It is the, it is the, the revelation of their, of their artistry that makes us think in a different way. And the other form of artists are, of course, writers mm-hmm. who criticize and make those things so that it brings it to others. But the most powerful of the artists are called comedians. Mm-hmm. They are there for as long as history has gone on. They were the court jesters. What people don't know is if you do your discovery of history, the court jester was always the closest to power. 
And the, only, and the only one allowed to make fun of the king, right? The only one allowed to make fun of the king. Mm-hmm. And we are threatening the court jesters. When Will Smith slapped Chris Rock afterwards, like on stage right then, Chris Rock said, wow, the most powerful moment in television. And I looked at my wife and I said, he's right. And she said, why? I said, because right there, that was the laying of the tombstone on comedy. Mm-hmm. That is more than the slap, more than anything. That was the moment that worried me. Is like, yeah, now cool. does a comedian get on stage and go, oh shit, I could get slapped. I better, you know, because we know I can get slapped. I could get canceled on Twitter, mm-hmm. but I could get physically slapped. I better not make any of those jokes. So that's why I admire the, the Joe Rogan and, and, and the Bill Mars and the others who just say it. They took their they took their slaps. They took their beatings. They the last year and a, and a half when nobody was allowed to say anything, they said stuff and yep. they got punished for saying yeah. stuff. And well, they got banned for, for politically incorrect because he made a comment about the people who did the bombing. At least they were committed, he said. Yeah. Oh, my God. You got to go. Yeah. And he's he, he you know, it's just it's I can see his frustration because he's like, you know, I've been out here for how many years with the same message? And here I am. It's like deja vu, you know, I cancel again. And, and it was interesting what you said about the mothers, because I agree. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's also alongside this idea of, of canceling comedy, you know, the, the, the great, you talked about mirrors. Comedy is mm-hmm. the greatest mirror we have to ourselves yeah. to find yeah. that vulnerability and humility. And what do we teach ourselves, you know, from what can we learn from learning to take ourselves a little less seriously is, is, an, is a great deal. But this movement towards letting the community drive the education of the child versus the mother, letting more and more handoff from the, the home to everything else being where our children get educated. And, you know, I'm curious if that's what you were pointing to when you said that uh, or not. And I miss I misinterpreted it because, you know, I have kids. It's close to home. We're getting close. You know, these these things of I, I, I felt like that there has been a shift from in the education system where the shift is, is less. The importance is less so on education as it was learn how to think, learn math learn a subject and learn how to learn to uh, to ideologies that are front and center and not unimportant i'm not saying those things are unimportant it's the environment in which the children of tomorrow learn that and you know there's there's just a very big pull to bring that into both politics or into into government structures and uh and community structures and out of the home and it's it's something I don't know how to deal with, to be honest. I, well, you know, uh, you even at your age, and I don't mean that in any way detrimentally, but, you know, we are of a different generation. But, you know, you can probably remember people going, looking at somebody and going, yeah, you know, he was homeschooled. <laughs> it was like, yeah, don't worry. It's a bit oh, weird. Yeah. He was homeschooled. Like it was an insult, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. It was a huge insult. And one of the, you know, I I think many great things have come out of the pandemic. 
many shitty things too. <laughs> Please don't think I'm talking about it only one-sidedly. But one of the great things was that it forced parents to take a more active role in, in educating their children, right? And, and one of the good things that came out of that was to recognize that people have this job every single day and you want to throw your kid out of the window because you've been doing it for two hours and they do it with, with 26 kids all day. You know, these people deserve a fucking medal, you know, for, for patients alone. Most of them are just damn good people, mm -hmm. right? Who are grossly underpaid. But that having the kids at home and being part of that education made parents realize I need to be more, I need to have a greater grasp of this. So I think that was a good thing. And the other thing is that this, it's made people look at something I spoke about in 1987 and 88 and 89. And that was this. I said, back then, let's take a look at the education system. And they said, okay, well, what is, what's wrong with it? And I said, well, first of all, what is it? Well, it's where we go to school and we learn things. No, it's not. It's not. It's an indoctrination system. And they go, it's not an education system. It's not indoctrination system. You're shoving things into people's heads. That's indoctrination. Education comes from the Latin in, uh, educat, which means to draw out. Not to push in, but to draw out. And so we're shoving things into people's head rather than teaching them how to think for themselves. And that is very, very important for us to do. The education system really was brought on board by the American industrialists who took it from Prussia. And Prussia is what we call today Germany. They lost the First World War. When they lost the First World War, being the Germans, being very analytical, they looked at it and went, what the hell went wrong? And they said, oh, it was easy. When we said charge, everybody just went wherever they wanted to go. People don't follow the rules. Okay. And that's why they became a very rules-driven society. So they started what's called, still to this day, you can go look it up, the Prussian school system. And the Prussian school system was about tra training people to do what you tell them to do. It was a, the industrialists of, a, of America including the Rothschilds and all those guys and Ford and all those went over there and went, wow, this is good shit. Let's bring this to America. And they did. That was the beginning of the American schooling system being what it was. And that was the beginning of the American schooling system being a law. You have to go. That was why, because we're going to prepare you for the factories where you will do as you're told and you'll follow that system. Well, it is no longer industrial America. It's very different. People are entrepreneurial. They're doing all kinds of things. We're living in a different age and we don't want to follow those rules. So that's also now become certainly people of your age are saying, well, you know, that's daft. Why would I go get a job for 40 years? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's like work for those clowns. I'll work for myself. No. So now we're going, hold on a second. We're starting to twick. Hold on a minute. I'm preparing my kids for a shitty system. Mm -hmm. I'm saying go to college and get a degree so that you can owe 200 grand so that you can work in something that's got nothing to do with what you studied. And what I say to people is when they ask me, I'll say, they say, are you in favor of college? I go, I think it can be great. Mm -hmm. A, if you really know what you want to do, fantastic. Uh, B, college does tend to teach you more how to think than school mm -hmm. did, mm -hmm. which is great. The other thing about it is this, you're going to learn social skills. And the problem with it is, though, that you're the age you're at, you have individuated from your family. That's a natural thing for you to do. Mm -hmm. 
And in your individuation, you're looking to belong somewhere else and you'll end up fitting in with a group. So you go and process some bullshit that you don't really care about so you can hang out with your friends because that girl that you fancy who has a vagina and you're, you're heterosexual, she has a vagina and she supports this thing. So you support it now because if you support it with her, you get access. Okay, well, I guess I'm in favor of that. It, I'm not judging anybody for it. We're all hormonal. We've all been there. But you end up in, indoctrinating yourself through your own desires rather than pulling back and saying, What's true for me? And if the answer is, I don't know, that's actually great. Stop and say, okay, I don't know. Let me examine the other side, constantly looking at the other side. That's what I want to do. In, in my show, in one of my shows, it's called The Curiosity Code. That's what we're talking about. We're looking at what's both sides. I want to know the other side of this. Mm -hmm. Tell me a side I don't agree with. I want to get that. Mm -hmm. Not because it's going to change my mind. It might. But because I want to understand it, I want to have that curiosity to get the capacity. So now we are at a place where the system and the systems and the environment that we've been living in, the cultural environment we've been living in, has brought to the fore, you need to be responsible for your child's education. Why? Because it's your child. Mm -hmm. And if you can't afford a private education, which let's face it, most people can't, then you need to take it upon yourself to say, okay. And I would then say to you, and let's add to that, please don't indoctrinate your child with your shit. Like expose them to other stuff. You're a Christian. Great. Take them to the mosque. Mm -hmm. Take them to the Jewish temple. Mm -hmm. Take them to the good water for the Sikh people. Take them to the Buddhist temple. Don't indoctrinate them with whatever you've got. You know, if, you, if you're really interested in science, that's fantastic. Take them to the art gallery. If you're a creative, artistic place, take them to the technology places. Teach them how to work with their hands. Give them the experience. And I think that that's part of why you've seen a movement, which you've done, instead of being a city boy, right? You've moved out of the city. You're living in the floodlands. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it sound so lovely. <laughs> you are, I mean, you're living on a farm and you, you know, yeah. you're getting your hands dirty. Your kids are going to have that experience. You're still a man of the world. You've traveled, you've, you've studied, you've experienced things. You've had businesses. You've been part of the big city thing. You've got a more well-rounded experience. Thank God that's, you know, your kids are getting that from you yeah. and your bride. No, it's, it's, it's true. I, you know, these were not easy things and I do, you know, I, I've tried to take my girls with me on business trips to Taiwan and Vietnam, or they've come in to visit the partners that I work with over there. But interestingly enough, is we actually ended up pulling our, our eldest daughter out of school prior to the pandemic. And it wasn't at that moment in time, strictly tied to you know our views around education and indoctrination. It was emotional. It was emotion. It was we had looked at, okay, so she's in school and she's having all these experiences and she comes home and all we get is the emotional download in a very short window of time wow. between you know being home and going to bed and doing it all over again. In other words, we don't get that, that moment that's clear to, to teach and listen and to and to grow together as a parent and a child do because they take every, you're their safe person. So they take everything out on you. 
that was unsafe in that environment, or they're not allowed to speak. They're not allowed to speak up to the teacher. They're, you know, they're not allowed to fight in the, in the playground, et cetera, et cetera. So all of those little moments bottle up. And then when they come home, you're their safe person. So you get the download. That doesn't mean they're a bad kid. It just means they need to be held on the couch, yeah. kind of like what you talked about. Yep. And that was the first, that was actually the first step for us was like, okay, she's seven, six or seven. She's not going to miss any big educational <laughs> advancements at this moment in time. What's more important is that she goes in, she, she is able to emotionally understand herself and, or express herself. And then we, you know, we bring those things back in, but, and then, and then all of this happened and, you know, like, you know, we were able to, to move out here and, and that's become, a, you know, they've become of two worlds, hands dirty mm-hmm. farmers and, and they know, you know, they know dad is a business guy. Right. And I'm curious, you know, I, I don't, I'm just always so grateful for your time and I want to be cognizant of it, but there's a gazillion more things I want to talk about. And because your book is, your book is about fierce loyalty. Yep. This is a terrible segue, but um, <laughs> cool. but just lubricate it a little bit, yeah. shove a little bit, of- <laughs> <laughs> but we're doing it. Yeah. And uh, it's my calling card. The, and you, you know, you, you're, you really talk about obviously loyalty and that is derived from good leadership. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're in a time where, you know, my generation is no longer the generation anybody talks about. They talk about the next one and how, you know, there's two things I want to try and bring home with you before mm-hmm. we, we say goodbye is, is understanding, you know, from what you've done, we've talked about children now coming to into the present with these young adults and mm-hmm. the next generation, what has changed in, in, in terms of leadership and loyalty and in, in, in achieving loyalty in these, in these new generations, as well as the def, the, the understanding of what it is to be loyal in an environment where we are faced with, well, I totally don't fucking agree with you. I think you're insane for your viewpoint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, how do we cultivate loyalty in, diametrically opposed viewpoints that we deem as life or death. Mm -hmm. And I don't just mean, again, viruses. I mean that everything has been brought to the boiling point of it's, it is the be all end all. Right. Yep. I know that those are a bit different. Maybe you can pick where you want to start. Well, I think where we have to start is, you know, I think that many of the things that I wrote about in, in fiercely loyal, are still rock solid. Um, actually, some of the things have become more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just saying this to one of my friends. Uh, I'm actually going to go back and look at some of the articles I wrote when the book first came out, because the book was written in response to 2008 recession. And I talked about how that the millennials are the asteroid that was coming to destroy the dinosaurs that are the command and control leaders, right? Well, now millennials are, you know, they're your age. Right, you're a millennial. Um, the oldest of the millennials is is 42 years old, um, so they're not kids. And now we're looking at Gen Y, a uh, Gen Z rather, which Z, is yeah. the next generation who are now 21 years old and about to enter the workforce. So when we look at that, a lot of the things are still rock solid and are there and as important as they were about what it takes to be to create loyalty. The thing that's really interesting to me is that now we're in 
that book was written in response to the Great Recession and how we've entered into what was what I called the hustle culture, where everybody was actually operating out of lack and they're going, oh, my God, the, 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 the recession could happen again. And I've got to hustle and I got to work like a dog and, you know, an abandoned family and abandon all this. And people did. And, you know, people said, well, I know it's, I'm doing this. You know, I know it looks like I'm a workaholic. And we just used instead of a workaholic, we used terms like I'm a hustler. I'm, I hustle. Right. It was bullshit. But OK. The, the Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, yeah, it was. You know, I, I was, you know, as you've heard me say, I, Gary Vaynerchuk was the high priest of hustle. Yeah. Right. In the religion of hustle. But there's more to Gary than that. And I'm not saying that that's who he is, but I'm saying that that's what was taken from that teaching was you just got to hustle. And then came the great pandemic and we got this pandemic that happened. And out of that pandemic, everybody got shoved off the treadmill. Whether you wanted to or not, you got off that treadmill. Even my friends whose businesses doubled, and I have many friends whose businesses doubled during COVID, got off the treadmill. In some way, shape, they were like, oh, okay. And they realized, I don't have to work 70, 80, 100 hours a week. I don't have to do that. That's, you know, there's more. I've got time for my, I want to make time for my family. And so they begin to reassess, reevaluate. And then we have the great resignation, the great resignation, which we're in right now. Four million people in January res- resigned. Another four million are looking to resign before the end of this year, right? That, and it's just, and it's not America. It's around the world. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing it in Australia. We're seeing it in Canada. We're seeing it in the UK. We're seeing it in European countries. And we're even seeing it in countries like Vietnam, which is, which is not a democratic society. People are going, I'm sick of working in the city in this shitty job. I may not have any money, but I'm going back to the village. I had, I had it with the the factories that I work with. Uh, You know, these are, these are highbrow factories and, you know, probably mostly Japanese owned. They had exodus. Yep. Exodus. Just like I've had enough, they reassessed. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really great thing. So how are you going to build, how are you going to build uh, loyalty today with potentially diametrically opposed political people? One of the things I say to the CEOs and leaders I'm working with, this was before people were coming back. I said, soon people are going to come back to work. Now, you're going to have to decide how you're going to handle that. But here's what you're going to need to know. Some of those people are going to be pro-Trumpers. And some of those people are going to be pro-Alexander uh, Ortega, you know, Cortez, AOC, or, or Antifa. Let's just go to the extremes. How are you going to handle that? And they're like, oh, we, we don't know. That's what we need your help with. You know, we're, we're thinking about just banning political talk in the office. Like, good luck. <laughs> good luck with that. Right, that won't work. So, well, what do we do? You make it an, a non-issue. How do we make it a non-issue? You make other things more important. Oh, because the only reason people are talking about it is because it's important to them. Well, how do you do that, Dove? You have to reach the anatomy of meaning. You've got to find out what meaning. So if I come together, let's say I'm a, an Antifa and you're a Trumper, I want to know what does it mean to you? What does that mean to you? And you tell me, and I say, well, okay, but tell me more about that. I want to understand that at a deeper level. Tell me more about it. Tell me more about Oh, range. Okay. I didn't know that. Tell me more about that. And I want to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And then you do it back to me. So now I've got this, I've got this deep, deep, deep understanding of the meaning of those movements. And guess where I come to always 
in every time I've done it, something very similar, something very similar. And then I say, not, well, okay. not a similar political view, something similar. No, no. A core a driving. Yeah. A core that's driving. The view. Yeah, a driving, yeah. a yeah. driving meaning because human beings are driven by meaning. The person who controls the meaning controls the mob. Don't believe me. January 6th, 21. There you go. Controlled the meaning. That's what happened. So it's the meaning that determines things. But when you pull back all the layers and find out what the meaning is for that person and you find the commonality in that meaning, not the politics, the commonality of meaning, and then you go, well, who are we as an organization? Is that aligned with our meaning? And you discover it is. Now people are talking about something far bigger than the politics. So then they're looking and going, listen, you might be a Trumper and I might be Antifa, but you know what really matters is what I really care, what we all care about in this organization is lifting people up, right? And I'm just using some, I know that's very vague and I apologize, yeah. but you know, lifting people up, we have this commonality. So let's lift each other up. Like if, I, if I'm going to, if I really boiled it down and I got to, I'm lifting people up and you got down to your lifting people up and I could argue that your way of lifting them up is actually repressing and you could argue the same, but that's the core. And this company we're working with, that's what they're about. And we're building a community around it in our company. I want to be part of that. Mm -hmm. In Fiercely Loyal, I talked about one of the things you're going to have to do to create loyalty is you're going to have to build a community for your company. I said that back in 2015. Mm -hmm. Now what I say is, no, no, don't build a business, build a community, and then put a business in it. Mm -hmm. The community is first. And we're more aware of that than ever because of our isolation that took place during COVID. We all inherently need community anyway, but COVID made it glaring for us. Can I pry with a follow-on, Dov? Absolutely. And do you believe that it does come down to the, the business leaders and, and I guess maybe the community leaders because the, the, the political leaders who I think historically we would have hoped to have shown leadership, you know, you have, have, in my view, done exactly the opposite is use mm -hmm. politicized things to, to drive their own, their own gain and, and, and thus divided a nation, uh, many nations, not just our nation. And, and you made a, po you made a post that, that I thought resonated. This is like the globe. You showed the global protest tracker and you were trying to say, or you were asking the question, you know, what do we do? Where's the leadership in all this? Mm -hmm. And I see no hope in Canada for that leadership mm -hmm. coming from the top from any party in Canada. No. In the States, I don't see it because, nope. you know, I, I, I don't have a finger on the pulse of Euro, uh, Europe and, and elsewhere enough to know if there's good leadership at the top. But, you know, is it, so is it, is it the responsibility flipped? It's like, no, we have to bridge the divides and find our commonality here as the business owners, as the moms and the dads, and, and ignore to an extent the, the divisive talk at the top. It's a good question. I mean, I, first of all, I want to address it by saying you're absolutely right in that uh, we certainly can't leave it to the people at the top. Um, we talked before about how truth and power don't go together. And because of purse strings, well, if you've got money in politics, there you go. I do keep my finger on the pulse of world politics because it's part of my work. England feels exactly the same. Mm. You know, uh, Boris Johnson, you know, 
is a clown. Uh, Macron is up very hard against right now against the hard right. Right. They're looking and they probably will take it from him because mm. he's not been strong enough around immigration for the French people and the French culture. Uh, Hungary is already hard right wing. So we're seeing it in lots of European countries as well. It's happening around the world. You've got Bolsonaro, who is uh, the tropical Trump. He's in Brazil. Uh, you, that's what his nickname is, right? Uh, you've got it in the Philippines. Um, it's very extreme there, too. So that rise is happening. It's even happening in Australia, right? So we're seeing it um, in a very strong, strong way. You know, and people might get upset about what I'm about to say, but I see that we're on the brink of a massive cultural revolution. And uh, there's two sides to that. So the question is, is it a cultural revolution that we determine, we being people who are not in power but are powerful, whom think, mm -hmm. right? Or do we allow it to go to the hands of power? So when I was speaking in 1986, 87, 89, and even uh, 80, uh, 92, I talked about New World Order, that George W, uh, George, um, not W, uh, George. Um, senior. Senior, yeah. George yeah. Bush Senior was talked a lot about New World Order. Uh, Biden is talking about New World Order. The MSNBC world. talked about New World Order. Yeah. And, and, uh, and it comes out of uh, Davos, you know, and so the other side of uh, that cultural revolution where we thinkers and people who give a shit take control. The other side of that is that the powerful take control and their, their version is a one world government, but it is cronyism on crank. I mean, it is just you know, it, it's the most powerful money in the world. It's, it's, you know, it's the Bill Gates of the world who telling us what to do with vaccines, who has no background in medicine, uh, you know, and is in legal lawsuits with India around sterilizing women without their permission. I mean, there are those legal battles. I don't want my government governments having anything to do with that. Uh, and at this moment, I, really see us teetering to towards that. And part of what will teeter us to the edge of that is people going, well, we just can't find a way to come to peace. Let's just hand it over to those guys and see what they can do. Well, that's how you ended up with Biden because it was like, well, we don't want Trump. <laughs> yeah. And that's how we ended up with Trump because it's like, oh my God, we don't want Clinton. Like, you know, so it's all this voting against rather than voting for. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was a vet last week who I spoke to, like we talk a lot, but I spoke to him before the, the general election in the United States, um, which was the Trump-Clinton one. And he said, Dove, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, he goes, I hate Trump. I think he's an asshole. I don't want to vote for him. He goes, but I'd rather vote for Adolf Hitler than Hillary Clinton. So who do I vote for? And I said, listen, mate, I only have one piece of advice for you. And he goes, what's that? I said, don't vote against. He goes, what do you mean? I said, vote for. I said, because if you vote for one of them and you vote for their policies, you have the right to criticize them. If you vote against someone and the other person gets in, you don't have any right to criticize them because right? you put them there. Mm -hmm. So it's like, wow, I never thought about it that way. And this is what because we're reactionary. We don't stop. 
And, you know, I started out by talking about feel your feelings. But when you feel your feelings, get them all out, feel them all fully and wholly, and then go, okay, now what do I want to vote on? Mm-hmm. Not learn to think like, while I'm pissed yeah. off. Well, yeah. And you, and you, you brought it up just, just a few minutes ago. You know, the teaching people to think is how you get the result of voting for. Voting for exactly. is thinking about what you want. And, exactly. And, and the opposite is happening. The opposite is let me do the thinking for you. Let, let Apple, Facebook, governments do the thinking for you. Let's make it easy for you. Life's hard. Let's make it easy for you. You know, and uh, we, when, we, when we rent out our critical faculties, we get where we are today. Yeah. And I, I thought it was fascinating. Again, I'm, I'm trying to be cognizant of your time, but, I, you know, you put out this fantastic piece on, on the Putin code, uh, the mm-hmm. emotional source code. And, and I thought, one, that was fascinating and Thank a you. critical piece of reading for everyone. So everybody who's listening, go to Dove's website because it's uh, sign up right there and you get it. And I couldn't help but try and understand Trudeau's, our prime minister. Exactly. And, and, and then, of course, you know, maybe Biden's, but I'm not sure there even needs to be one there at this moment. If, if it's not him making any of the calls, it does not appear to be. But, you know, and then you look at you look at Trudeau and you're like, OK, well, at least I can put some context into what has been a, a very big shift in somebody that I have voted for yeah. in terms of how he speaks to his population and 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 trying to not be as best as I can reactionary to him. And, and so your ex, the point being the exercise of having read your Putin one and then looking at him was a really interesting one to do uh, for myself and try. I don't obviously understand it as well as you do. Uh, you, you invented it. Is it your formula? Yeah. The, the way I formulized it. Yeah. That's entirely mine. And yeah. it comes from many different, I brought together many different fields of psychology um, with neuroscience to understand it. So as you saw in the book, uh, in the report, I show this is the emotional source code. The emotional source code gives a, gives the anatomy of meaning to the person we're looking at. The anatomy of meaning gives us the beliefs, identity, and behavior that we can expect from that person based on those things. Mm-hmm. And so if the person is driven by this that came out of their anatomy of meaning, it will form all these things. And so one of the things I talked about in that piece was – that because of Putin's childhood, and this is, you know, it's always where the source code starts, because of his childhood, he has a messianic complex. And that calling him a war criminal is actually empowering him to keep doing his things because his thinking is, you don't understand me. I speak, I am Russia. Not I speak for Russia, I am Russia. Mm. And that's just one example. So when you look at uh, Trudeau's, for instance, like I've, done some sketches around his. I've done part of the analysis. I haven't gone all the way through um, because I decided not to. I just no because I, there's other ones oh. that I think are more important for me right now. But one of the things around his is if you have a mother who is mentally ill and you have a father who is the, the most uh, charismatic politician in Canada that the Canada's ever known, what does that do to your psyche? Mm-hmm. Your mom's running around as a, as a groupie with the Rolling Stones uh, because she's mentally ill and she's, you know, she's shagging everybody in there is at that time. 
And then there's rumors that you might, your dad might not be your dad and you live in your dad's shadow. How would that impact you? That's part of where we get to the source code. There's, yeah. there's a lot more to it than that, but that gives people a way to go. Oh, and that's all I want them to do is go. Oh, exactly. I didn't think about that. Well, and to, to that point of, I was thinking about how, when you said Putin thinks he is Russia, and I was then, this comment that Trudeau made not so long ago at the Queen's birthday when he said he'd known her for 45 years. And I thought Trudeau associates his world with the, the royalty and the world elites since, yes. since he was a baby. He was born into that. And why is it so hard for him to connect with Canada's truckers versus British royalty? Is it, lifelong. And I didn't put two and two together until I read, you know, maybe, maybe that's just my density and my, my, my own daftness, but no, it's uh, people wouldn't think about it. That's the whole thing with the emotional source code. Everybody who reads the emotional source code uh, or reads my work around it, go, and, and I do this, this is the work I do in my private clients. Mm-hmm. They all go, Oh my God, of course it, mm-hmm. it gets you to an, of course, but you can't see it because it's not, that's why I, I architected the entire thing is because it was like, because one of my friends said to me years ago, how can I understand the things that you, you're able to put things together that don't make sense to me? Mm-hmm. And that's how I started working on how, how do I design this so that people can understand it's this and that layers that and that layers that and that layers that and that layers that. So it came out of the question that has driven my entire life, which is why do people do what they do, even when what they do doesn't make sense? Mm-hmm. That's the question. Because we've all done it. We've all done daft shit and gone, why the fuck did I do that? Like, that doesn't make any sense. But it's your source code. And so when you look at that as a nation or a movement, you realize, oh, my God. So, you know, Black Lives Matter, totally in favor of the original movement. Very much against the movement it is now. Which Because it's not a Black Lives Matter. Now it's yeah, a Marxist it's, movement. No. <laughs> it's a Marxist movement. But that's happened... And there are many black people who are now speaking up against it, but there are many black people who can't walk away from it because of their, their source code connecting to it for what it was, not what they, it is. They weren't even like, I talked to my black friends in the States because we, my main brand Cosan tries to have a human rights component. And I said, what do we do to support? And he's like, you don't touch it. This is, this is not what the movement says it is. These are dear friends all over the United States. And I, and I made sure I called them and I was just like, Oh, did not expect that answer from you. No. Right. Exactly. But the question, the last question, I promise once you have it, what do you do with it? Once we know Putin source code or Trudeau's or whoever's, mm-hmm. how do we, as a nation, because as an individual, I can see in a coaching and a one-on-one coaching environment, how we implement that for positive transformation. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you do it as a nation when you're fighting, not fighting, that's not the right word. When you're up against the purse strings, you're up against state-owned media, you're up against just so many different factors. Mm-hmm. And that's where you throw up the hands and or many throw up the hands and say, well, okay, but I can't do anything. <laughs> so let's go along. So, I mean, let's look at, first of all, well, why would I do the Putin one? People ask me that. And the answer is, well, first of all, I want people to understand that you're being fed a story by the media that is going to be whatever it is. I mean, there are many people on Fox who are supporting Putin, Mm -hmm. right? 
Okay. There are people on MSNBC who are saying, you know, he's a war criminal. Okay. But let's understand him objectively without any purse strings. I'm not getting advertising from, from the Fox people. I'm not getting advertising from the MSNBC people. So let's have this objective view of this human. Now we go into negotiation. Uh, you know, my hope is that, you know, as, as you know, I do the political stuff. And my hope is that somebody political gets a hold of it. I'm certainly trying to get it to them. But if you're going into negotiations with, with uh, Putin and you understand his source code, you're going with very different mm. agenda. So one of the things I wrote about, not in that, but in the lead up to that piece, when I usually when I write above it, and I say, if we want peace in the Ukraine, you have to create a victory off-ramp for Putin. And people said, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. It's a way for him to leave that war but be a victorious leader because the source code of Russia, not of Putin, of Russia is they will kill a powerful leader who loses power. They will kill them. They will literally murder them. Putin knows that about his country. He cannot afford to lose. So, he, so you cannot do that. So you've got to give him a an off-ramp that is victory. So if I'm going in to negotiate, I'm going to go, okay, let's work this out. I'm going to sit down with the other side and I'm going to say, okay, well, you know, what are you willing to give up here? That's going to make him look like a freaking hero to his people. The story he can sell because the story he sold to getting into the, uh, with the Russian people was one of being a hero, one of being a messianic character, as I talked about in there. So that's, that's the power of it. I also do it for nations. So I've done one for the United States. It's not quite complete, but it's nearly complete. So I'm going to be doing one for probably for, uh, for a big tech company. I'm not sure if it's going to be Facebook or if it's going to be Google. It'll probably be Google because Google is more than one person, whereas Zuckerberg tends to be Facebook. So I'll do one for them. I'll do one for a, uh, uh, a family business. So it'll probably be uh, like Walmart because that's mm -hmm. a, like the Walton family because it's a multi-generational family business. And then uh, the individuals are, you know, like, like Putin looking at them. When we understand a nation, like doing the one for the US or for Canada or Australia or Britain, when we understand the nation ones, then we understand how to talk to, the, to that nation politically, mm -hmm. how to move the nation, not politically right or left, but to talk to their code. So the American source code, to give you the very, there's, there's, usually boils down to one word. So the American one is the same one that was used by Martin Luther King and was also used by Donald Trump. It got them, got, uh, it got people to go to the Million Men March and be in, in Washington Square with, with Martin Luther King when he did the I Have a Dream speech. And it got the people to march on to uh, Congress on January 6, 2021. And the word is the one word of the American source code is freedom. Mm -hmm. I have a dream. His dream is mentioned 11 times in that speech. Freedom is mentioned 23, I think. More than double. Freedom. Mm -hmm. Let freedom reign. Let freedom reign. It's freedom that is the source code. Trump talked about they're threatening to take away our freedom. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to speak to the American people, you must talk in the language of freedom. Mm -hmm. If you and the problem with it, with source code is it's neutral. So if you're a shitbag and you want to take it in the wrong direction, you can do that. Brian Peckford was on, um, who's the former Newfoundland MP, who's taking the 
the federal government to court uh, over what he believes is, you know, illegally breaking Canada's charter. Uh, that is not the point. The point is that he was on uh, a guy named Brett Weinstein's Dark Horse podcast, very popular. And fantastic he was, podcast. It's fantastic. And he was talking about the exact same. Brett was trying to make the case that, that the difference between Canada's extended, what he would call draconian measures, um, and, and the United States is guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have them. They have them. And Brian Petford made not a long argument, but, but a fair point to just say, but Canada's history and Canada as a nation is not a gun nation. So that's not a factor to your point in our source code that we it's would. not our source code. Right. And, and now I'm, now I'm thinking about that. I didn't think about that when I was. Well, if you think about it this way, one of the things that most people don't know is that per capita, Canadians tend to have more guns than Americans. I remember reading that research. We have a lot of guns, but we have very few shootings. They happen, of course, but very few. And part of the reason is because we have better laws and rules around getting them, right? You can't waltz into Walmart and get one. And we haven't Um, had a civil war. And we haven't had a civil war. And we we trust, and this this is why the Trudeau thing is so, so big is because Canada has always trusted its government. It hasn't always liked its government, but it has always trusted its government. And it's when I say that, I want to, I'm not saying the government in power, I'm saying it's trusted its political system. Yes. And it always trusted its political system. Now the problem in Canada is people are beginning to question the political system of Canada. Now we're, this is where we're on, in trouble, right? So now we're not going to be as nice. This is where you're going to get into, the, but it the source code of Canada is not a civil war, it's 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 not all those things. So, and we've trusted our, our system of government, so we don't need guns because the government's not coming for us. Mm-hmm. Whereas American has that paranoia around their freedom, so freedom is is the key word, but it's the paranoia of keeping it that drives the emotional side of the source code. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating work. Oh, man, I could I could talk to you forever. Um, Thank you, sir. <laughs> you're one of my very favorite people in the whole world to talk to, and I and I and I just hope that you know for those who followed this, um, you know, all the way through, you know, don't don't follow my podcast. <laughs> both go, go to both of Dobbs. There, you get all of him. This is going to be you know an episode you love of mine, but that think of that all day long on his podcast. So, and also you're a prolific blogger. I, you know, I don't know how you put out so much content whilst keeping sane and fit and (laughs) balanced and paused in in, maybe assuming a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Sane, you know, (laughs) (laughs) well, yeah, people will make their judgment at the end. Exactly. (laughs) But I, but I mean that sincerely, and I just I hope that people you're doing interesting, important work. You're sharing it on social media, you're sharing it on Medium. It's on your website. You're asking questions, like you said. You're you're following curiosity, and you, like we mentioned, Mar and, and Rogan, you have been unafraid to ask questions and to and to and to condemn whatever doesn't make sense or or your own side, if there's, you know, there's inconsistencies, et cetera. I don't want to say you're picking a side, but I just mean, you know, you've been fearless and courageous and I, and I respect that about you 
Is there any? Thank you very much. Of course. Is there anywhere you want people to find you? Is there any specific blog or, or place that you, know, you really want them to go? Obviously, you've got two books. Mm-hmm. And tell them where they can, where they can get all, all Dov all day long. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that. Of course, if you Google my name, D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N, you'll get more than you could possibly cope with. As far as Medium and the articles that I write, you'll find those on medium.com forward slash curious leader. Um, I'm on YouTube. There's probably a thousand videos on there. Uh, Instagram uh, at Dove Baron Leadership, Facebook, Twitter, and also uh, LinkedIn, of course. And uh, if you're interested in working me, with me privately, get your big boy pants or your big girl pants on because I'm not going to be pissing about. I'm going to take you where you need to go. And it's beyond anything you've previously imagined. And we're not focused on your success, but invariably your success will go through the roof. It always does with my clients, but we're going to focus on your why of your why, the deepest meaning of your life. Uh, You can find out my podcasts. They're on uh, Apple or wherever you get them from. You can find uh, Curiosity Bites. You can find Leadership and Loyalty, uh, which is the one that Joel talked about at the beginning. And by the way, Go look at the one with Joel on it. It's a really good show. He did a great job. Thank you for being a great guest on that. So it's, that's on there. I mean, really, it's not difficult to find me. Reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to, to have conversation. I'm happy to, to, to be of service. I'm here on the planet to be of service. So if you want to reach out to me in person, and I encourage you to do that, D-O-V, Dov, at DovBaron.com. Write to me. I know it's crazy. I'm giving you my private email, but do it. Write to me and, and tell me, here's what I want to know. Did you get anything out of this? Or was I just, you know, this is the ramble. Did you think I was just rambling? Or did we go on a journey that took you to destinations that were important for you? I want to know. And what's more is I want you to let Joel know. Because I have two podcasts and I'll tell you something. It's a one-way freaking street. We do all the work. We put all the people on here. We, we put people on who get paid thousands and thousands of dollars an hour. Giving it free to you. You know, they, they give their time and their energy and you have no idea the amount of work it takes to put it all together. There's money invested, there's time, there's energy. Joel did all that for you to be on the Ramble, to listen to the Ramble podcast. So you need to write a review, rate the show, share it with your buddies, make sure other people like, let's not do this hoarding shit. Let's share it with everybody else. Let other people know. If you don't like my show, that's great. Listen to the other ones. And if you like those, share it with other people, review it. And let Joel know, write to him, let him know what you got out of this and what you're going to do with it. And you can email me, dove at dovebaron.com and tell me, okay, I listened to you on, 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 on the ramble and uh, I thought you were a lunatic and I want nothing to do with you. Great. Thank you for doing that. Or, you know, I learned a couple of things and here's what I'm going to do. Fantastic. It's really important. It's not a one-way street. Joel, I am... Deeply grateful and honored. Thank you, sir, for having me on. Thank you for your courage in putting together this podcast in the way that you have uh, to allow that that meandering through this journey to to find the treasures hidden along the path that we probably didn't expect to get to, which is very cool. Thank you. That's cool. Thanks, Don. All right. Goodbye, everyone. Until next time. As always, thanks so much for listening to The Ramble. You know, there is a lot of podcasts out there, so we thank you for choosing to listen all the way through on this one. You know, we want to be part of the, the solution, the, the good questions, the things that move you and inspire you. 
make you want to connect deeper with yourself and others and all that great stuff. So if the spirit does move you, subscribe, share, post, anything, we'd be forever grateful. And if you have any comments or feedback, good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. We're here to listen. Guests you think we should have on, of course, send them along. Thank you. And until next time, peace. Hey, thanks so much for making it to the end of the podcast. I know that my self and of course my guests really appreciate you listening all the way through you know, they put a lot of time into their projects and their ideas and and you know, they're very thoughtful with how they they bring themselves and show up on the show and so i'm really grateful that uh, that you've listened all the way through you know we don't have ads on the show i think i don't think red circles running ads but i wanted to take just a quick second to say that hey if the spirit moves you you know this podcast can be brought to you by some of the wild, fun, wacky, creative things I do. I always try and stay in the practice of creativity, whether that's writing or working on films or uh, just about anything. I, I try and be very diligent that I'm I'm doing it consistently. And so, you know, as a result of that, I put some things out and, and I'd love for you to check them out. You know, one is uh, Getting Naked, The Bare Necessities of Entrepreneurship and Startups. That's my book and you can get it anywhere where books are sold online like Amazon or Barnes and Nobles or Indigo. And uh, it's the story of my company, Naked Underwear, the first company I started that went from a failed attempt on Dragon's Den, um, that's your Shark Tank in America, to the NASDAQ and was eventually divested. And it has a ton of tips and ideas for startups, very practical advice, but it's always also interwoven with my own story, which I think entrepreneurs and creatives and artists can really, uh, would really relate to, uh, you know, has almost 155 ish star, four and a half star reviews. And I think people, if you're going through, you know, a startup needs some motivation, needs some ideas, just want to feel like, Hey, there's a kindred spirit out there. You know, it's a great book to check out. Also, you can check out my blog at joelprimus.com forward slash blog, where I write a couple of blogs a month about a variety of topics, a lot of stuff on fitness, things like how to know when to quit, a lot of personal development, psychedelics, all kinds of things. Everything's written from a personal lens. And, uh, you know, it's just a great way to digest a little bit of hopefully fun and helpful and inspiration. And of course, keep checking out this podcast, The Ramble on the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever your podcatcher of choice is. Thanks again and have an awesome day, week, month, whatever it is.